You're listening to the Vet Chat NZ. We're a local podcast hosted by vets and chatting to industry experts about the hottest topics in animal health. We hope you enjoy listening. G'day everybody, welcome to another episode of the Vet Chat. I'm Matt Wells. Our guest today is Greg Chambers. G'day Greg. Hi Matt, hi everyone. Good to have you along. So for those that don't know Greg, I'm sure most people probably know him, he's he's probably best known to quite a few of you as um, uh, the Zoetis technical manager for, for a few years, but a little bit of background. Um, courtesy Greg, Greg flicked me through a, a few details, which you'll probably understand why I say that in a moment. But, um, but he's a, he actually lives in Cambridge there at the moment. He's actually only about 10 minutes down the road from me uh, with his wife and a couple of kids. Um, 2002, crikey, Greg, you've been graduated 20 years. Um, I know. It's a, yeah, I'm, I'm at about 26 now, so it, yeah, it's pretty scary. It goes quickly. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I'm sure it keeps going. It probably accelerates too. But um, so yeah, you were you were in practice in clinical practice for about ten years in the South Island UK. Came back and then went to the dark side and uh, like myself, I suppose, and working for for Zoetis for about ten years as well. And I suppose as you as you point out here, and um, we were just talking about it really, that it's quite it's quite cool getting involved in trials. Um, we both had a similar experience of getting sort of you know, involved in quite a few trials and, and really enjoying it. For Greg, I suppose for yourself, it, it kind of ignited a, an interest in epi, which it hasn't so much in me, but you did your epi masters and then decided you just wanted to be an epidemiologist, I suppose, in the end, didn't you? Exactly. So that uh, took you to Vedent Research, where, which has morphed into EpiVets, as we explained with Emma, um, Emma Cuttance a couple of episodes ago. Yeah, so now you're sort of deep diving into, into that kind of stuff, including a PhD on um, sheep mastitis, which is actually one of my interests too, um, you know, New Zealand, New Zealand dairy sheep. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to finding yeah. out about what you find in that too. But. Cool. Yeah, and then I'm going to read out the last little bit just word for word because in, in your own words, it says, apart, apart from that, he enjoys exercising and listening to random podcasts and learning interesting but useless trivia, such as the fact that Americans are more than twice as likely to die from vending machine-related accidents than shark attacks. So, <laughs> I should probably explain that a little bit. When I say vending machine-related accidents, people tend to think of of finding skeletal remains with their arm you know embedded in the machine it's actually it's people it's people getting angry that it hasn't dispensed what they wanted and they rock the vending uh, machine yep, those things yep. are quite heavy and they land on people <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of yeah it's kind of darwin in action isn't it really yeah. um, that kind of thing but yeah um i think actually i remember reading a few years ago that um that actually I'm pretty sure quite a few more people die every year from taking selfies and shark attacks as well. But you'd be surprised, even entanglement in bed sheets is another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good vet sense of humor. So, so this, is, um, this is good because this is exactly the kind of useful information we, we um, strive <laughs> to, to get through in, in the vet chat. So, um, but, Anyway, it's not actually what we were really here for. Greg and I had a bit of a chat. We've both recently been overseas, been at the World Bariatrics Congress um, in Madrid. And afterwards, talking about, you know, sort of all the, all the really interesting things that you find out, like how, how there's all these cool things. And yes, it's a, it's a European 
um, centered conference, but there's always stuff that's kind of interesting and relevant to, to New Zealand that comes up as well. And just sort of going, it's just a shame there aren't more New Zealanders there and, and there aren't better ways of getting some of that information back. So, so I guess this is our attempt at getting some of it back to a few people who, you know, might be listening to the podcast. So, yeah. I think it's a good idea, yeah. Matt. Um, <clears throat> maybe you suggested it at the conference and, you know, I completely agree. I'm guilty of it myself as well, but mm. um, it does often happen. People go to conferences from a clinic and, and learn some things, but, you yeah, extending that back to everyone else can be a challenge. You just get busy, so. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what I was going to say, you know. Yeah, you sort of have the best of intentions and then you just sort of get sidetracked and do something else and yeah, maybe come up in a conversation. But trying to formalise it a bit is not a bad idea. So so what mm. we thought we'd do is is just pick sort of half a dozen or so of the really the ones that we thought were kind of relevant or interesting or just a bit quirky or, you know, just, just ones that, that were might be interesting. I mean, yeah, the thing is enormous conference. So, you know, we were just saying we think there's around about fifteen hundred abstracts, I think, Greg. And so, you know, yes. we're really just scratching the surface. We're probably talking about less than one percent of all the all the things that were at the um, at the conference. It's it's a little overwhelming actually when you go yeah. there because there are. I was just looking at my. I've kept the, the little handbook, mm-hmm. and I think there are about seven streams running concurrently yep. in different rooms. Yep. There are over four thousand people there, yep. and the, the building it was in was had about four or five levels, you know, floors with different presentations that would, you know, room, yeah. various rooms, and it was almost overwhelming because there are, of, of course, multiple talks happening at the same time, yeah. and you want to go to all of them. And in fact, as I was going back through the abstracts book just to refresh my memory of some of the presentations that we'll talk about today i keep coming across other abstracts that i'd completely missed during the conference yeah. i thought oh i want to read that now and i, and I had to stop myself yeah. from getting sidetracked there's a lot of content there yeah overwhelming is actually probably about the same word as as i had you know you're almost sort of like oh my god i'd like to see all of this and and then um yeah is that and then you kind of spend all this time, you decide, oh, yeah, this is the one I'm going to go to. And then you try and get in and the, and, uh, the room was full and they closed the doors, yes. and, you know, so yeah. then you'd have to go somewhere else. And yeah, so um, <clears throat> the other thing, you mentioned that that building was the four stories. That was the weirdest building I've ever seen in my life. So you, <laughs> you couldn't, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeless with directions and finding my way to places as it is. But um, there were there were lifts that only went to certain floors and stairs and escalators yep. that went to other floors and you couldn't get from one side to the other if you're on, on the second floor, but you could on the third or you like all kinds of like, yeah, so I don't know. It, uh, it was like an MC Escher drawing where yeah. the, it felt yeah. like you had to um, break some laws of the universe to get to various parts of the building. It was yeah, no, that's pretty exactly intense. what I thought too. Yeah, <laughs> if, you're, if you're not familiar with the Escher stuff, it's those those impossible buildings where you know there's one one person kind of climbing the staircase upside down and another one going sideways and like all, all and, and it's sort of all looks like it's in the same plane but it's not. And it actually felt like the architect had like seen a picture of that and gone, I should build a building like that. Right, that's you know, right. <laughs> uh, so. Anyway, but overall, I mean, you know, your your thoughts on the conference in general and value and that sort of stuff, Greg? Yeah, it was great. I've been to, I think that was the third or fourth bioeatrics I've been to, mm-hmm. and of the congresses I've attended, that one stood out to me in having probably the best content because, uh, I mean, they do tend, to, of course, to be fairly northern hemisphere dominated. Yep. So some of the topics don't translate that well to New Zealand but and of course the the scope of the conference is all about ruminant health and that mm. includes 
yeah, mostly cattle, but more ruminants too, and camelids. Mm. So uh, that had quite good content, and you have a lot. Some content from the northern hemisphere is relevant, no matter what it is, whether it's about energy balance or consumption mm. rates. And then uh, there are topics, particularly from places like Ireland and Australia, that are pasture based and especially relevant to New Zealand. So yeah, mm. it had had still had lots of random things. I mean, you could, if you want to learn about, I don't know hyperglycemia and alpacas, you'll probably yeah. find presentations on that, but, but also yeah. a lot of the standard stuff. So yeah, it was a really interesting series of presentations and ranging from big keynote speakers, professors at universities through to all different levels, uh, practitioners presenting their work as mm. well. So it was yeah, very interesting, very mixed. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, yeah, somewhere I've been to, I think it's my third one that I've been to, and, and yeah, I'd say that's probably the best of them. Certainly a lot bigger and better attended than, than the Japan one, the more recent one. Um, yeah, and I suppose, yeah, you, you make the comment about, you know, the number of attendees and everything. I think one thing to bear in mind is that, of course, it was postponed from 2020. Um, so there's kind of four years of backlog of, right. of stuff rather than two years. So, so yes. there's lots of really cool stuff coming through. So, um, yeah. perhaps that's part of why it became quite overwhelming, but, um, anyway, so, so what we thought we'd do, um, as I sort of said earlier, is just, just run through a few that we'd kind of packed out and, and, um, you know, spend a few minutes on each one and, um, sort of a highlights package, I guess, or, or maybe, you know, speed dating, um, vet style. Um, actually there's a bit of that that goes on anyway, I think, but, um, maybe we won't use that reference. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, so, I mean, first up, I mean, you had, you had, uh, what do you have, four oral presentations yourself? Um, That's right. Which is, which is bloody impressive, I have to say, but, um, do you want to maybe take us through the ones that you actually presented yourself to begin with? Sure. Well, yeah, there are four presentations that I gave. Two were a truck and trailer. They were, both came out of some research I did for, for my, well, ended up being for my master's, and that was on phantom cows. Mm-hmm. The, there were two presentations. The first one was on the reproductive effects of a blanket progesterone-based synchrony program for phantom cows. We just randomized phantom cows into a treatment and a control group and then measured the reproductive performance. And then the second presentation used the results of that study and we did an economic analysis to see if it's actually, I mean, it's one thing for phantom cow treatment to work or not work, but then is it economically viable as well? Yeah. yeah. And that, that all really came out of uh, a question that uh, Matt, I remember Matt O'Sullivan and Omaru asking mm-hmm. about phantom cows. I didn't know the answer, so we decided to set up a study. And the long and short of it is that using that progesterone-based program, we increased the percentage of phantom cows that were pregnant at the end of the mating period. And we slightly shortened the time to conception, but that wasn't significant. So the the main benefit or the significant benefit was they're more likely to be pregnant. It did work in that regard. There are a couple of other benefits you can get too that was sort of less direct. It's an opportunity for farmers to re-inseminate those phantom cows and also to use short gestation length semen and bring them forward even even more. Um, we also found that cows that had been treated as a non-cycler that season were more than twice as likely to be a phantom cow, but they made up less than half of phantom cows, if that makes sense, because you've got all of your cows that weren't non-cyclers, that's a bigger population of cows, you, you still get phantoms from them too. So that 
that was the result of that study. And then for the economics, I did some really probably quite detailed and boring, but built a, like a decision tree model that but I ended up having to almost model reproduction in a dairy herd. And I just wanted to know if you implement a phantom cow program, does it pay? And the short answer to that is generally yes, but not always. And it, you can pick your winners. It's really it did a little sensitivity analysis and it's really dependent on the accuracy of pregnancy diagnosis because of course if you diagnose a pregnant cow non-pregnant and then treat and therefore you think she's a phantom cow and then you treat her with a program that has prostaglandin you'll terminate that pregnancy if you miss any of those then you'll quickly make Mm. it non-profitable then the next thing was the accuracy of the farmers drafting and cow selection because what what you do with a phantom cow program is you might identify the first say three two to four weeks of the mating period those are the cows that you'll look for phantoms in you'll take the cows that were inseminated and not or did not return pregnancy test them get rid of the pregnant cows and the non-pregnant cows are the phantoms because they they've been mated they haven't returned by day 24 but they're non-pregnant if the farmer accidentally gives you some cows that had been remated in between then and when you scan them or that weren't even in that group again they might have little pregnancy little embryos that you can't detect that's not a pregnancy detection error it's a farmer selection error and again um, you'll potentially terminate some little embryos then the third factor was just the prevalence of phantom cows the more phantom cows you have the fewer cows you have to scan to find one phantom cow as we found it about a nine percent prevalence amongst those non-returning cows so almost one in ten of those non-returning cows was phantom which is Sort of the difference between your non-return rate and your conception rate. So yeah, those those three things really impacted the, the profitability. But on average, per phantom uh, per, per cow in the herd, there's about a four or five dollar net profit to treating phantom right. cows. That's not per phantom. That's per cow in the herd. So per cow, it's four or five thousand dollars. But it, yeah. it varies depending on those factors. It was much higher on some farms, and then it can be negative. So yeah, th- those are the main main two things about the phantom cows. The the reproductive effects and the economics. Yeah, so I mean, we we kind of made the the comment about European stuff and not necessarily being that applicable to New Zealand, but you're almost uh, in the opposite sort of zone yes. there, aren't you? That that you've got kind of a quite niche New Zealand thing, um, you know, with That's some right. of that stuff. But you actually had a you're in one of the big rooms, like it was selected as a pretty major sort of presentation. So. How did the Europeans or the North Americans in general sort of respond to it? Did you get much feedback? I did actually. I was surprised. I had more interest than I thought. Uh, some of that came from the, uh, Australians who were in the audience. Cause that, the, and actually a lot of the early phantom work by Doc McMillan and David Nation mm. and others True. came out of Australia. So that, there was interest from them, but also from the Americans there too who were looking at cows that had been inseminated and, and you know, they're interested in early embryonic death, which mm. I think is often what's happened with phantom cows here. Yeah. About two thirds of the phantom cows had a corpus luteum, were were high progesterone in, in the New Zealand study, so that suggests that they're stuck in diestrus and thinking that they've actually conceived, but they haven't recognised that the embryo is gone. So um, yeah, I felt like a little barnacle on the side of a ship because I, I was called back to the uh, to a round table with Jose Santos and. Paul Fricky, who were these sort of gurus from the from the United States, and uh, yeah, I was also there too, answering questions from the audience. And there were a few people 
yeah, from the Northern Hemisphere asked some questions. So, yeah, that was that was nice. Oh, that's, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, you should probably give yourself a bit more credit. Credit Greg, you're a bit more than a bit. <laughs> At least a, like a green, green <laughs> a mollusk. or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was that. Um, and, well, what were your other ones? In there? Then uh, also on Repro, I presented a study for a, for a ex-colleague of mine at Zoetis, Kristen Baxter, she and Luke Smythe and also Nomaru ran a study during the mycoplasma outbreak where they had, had an opportunity with a dairy farmer who, because of mycoplasma, wanted to avoid bringing animals onto the farm that didn't need to be there. And thinking of his rising two-year-old heifers, he wanted to try and mate them without buying bulls and just use all AI. And it was an opportunity to trial mating heifers just with synchrony programs and no follow-up bull because there is a reasonable amount of work in new zealand on synchrony programs and heifers various options pg etc progesterone based programs but they're generally pretty, followed up with a bull mating yeah it's pretty ballsy isn't it because you, you <laughs> yes you're pretty confident in your heat detection and everything so yeah yes that's right so what what they did was three rounds of synchrony they did a full Okay. Theta program in the heifers for round one and then reinserted the cedars without the injections and in, uh, about 14 days after they were pulled out or after they were inseminated to the first round and then mated anything. Well, after the first round, there was, of course, blanket insemination, just fixed-time AI. Then after reinserting the cedars for another seven days, they mated to estrus anything that came on heat was inseminated and then they were pregnancy tested and sort of split into three directions those that were pregnant to that first round those and, and those that were mated after the reinsertion and those that had not been or were uh, confirmed non-pregnant very, very they're sort of broken into different categories and some of them were reinserted again and or re-synchronized again they ended up with from memory not, I think it was 90, 91% total pregnancy at the end. We had mm. 64% pregnant to the first round, and then it jumped up to 81% after the reinsertion, and then 91% at the end. And, and we're talking uh, 135 heifers in the mob total, so mm. it was you know, a typical-sized heifer mob for South Island. And 9% empty in a group of heifers is still pretty high, really, isn't it? So, yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So it certainly wasn't you know 95%, although... Mm. I, I believe the farmer continued to do that because he was happy with that result, okay. given the fact that he didn't need to use bulls. But uh, yeah, that was just, it's basically a case study mm. showing mm. what sort of results were achieved with that program with three rounds of artificial breeding. Yeah, well, I, I hate to burst this, I, I hate to burst this guy's bubble, but um, one of the posters that I saw, um, which is actually well, not quite on the same thing, but you know, you sort of segue to it through the Embovis thing, but uh, yeah, when you you know when you kind of you got nobody to talk to and you pretend that you're reading the posters um, during that sort of <laughs> wander around. I actually did read some posters when I was when I was going through. But yeah, there's a there's a quite interesting one that I found about um, um, Embovis in Finland, and I didn't realise, but they they got it pretty late too. So they didn't um, their first introduction of Embovis was 2012. Um, right. So they've still got quite a lot of farms that don't have um, Bovis um, at the moment. So you know they're still trying to. I don't know how much they're trying to 
get back on top of it, but at least they've still got a reasonable number of uninfected farms. So they're kind of doing a bit of research on how farms actually get infected still. And it turns out that they actually found a, a bull who was infected and then they could actually detect Embovis in his semen. And then they sort of tracked through all the farms that he had actually been, um, that his semen had been used on. And anyway, long story short, again, uh, you were six and a half times more likely to get Embovis if you were using a bull with contaminated semen. So yes, so I guess that strategy that this farmer is doing isn't going to guarantee that he doesn't get it. Oh. The only thing I was the only thing I was going to say is like it, I, I read and reread it, and it does not say whether they're using fresh or frozen semen. So um, yeah, sort of assuming that. Well, yeah, we're, I, I I don't know whether to sort of tiptoe through the landmines about um, how Embovis got introduced but um, yeah, if there is a, a possible sort of pathway of semen then there's maybe a little bit of um, evidence in behind it yes, coming out I do, as well so. I do recall, I'm a bit out of touch with Mycoplasma Embovis but I do mm. recall that being mentioned as a sort of putative or you know, a possible way of entering mm. so yeah that's interesting and <laughs> that's a little disturbing that that result they got in Finland. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. But uh, anyway, well, um, yeah, all sorts of pathways, I suppose. So yeah. it could get introduced in all kinds of ways. Um, yeah. So that's three. You had one more um, oral. Pre- How did you end up with four oral presentations? That's a, that's a heck of an effort, really. But um, well, I suppose two of them are kind of the same study. So in a way, it's maybe uh, three and a half. <laughs> I'm probably cheating a bit. But um, and the, yeah, the, I had one more, which was a completely different study. This time involving a, a vaccine. It was about the non-specific effects of vaccination. What it was about was I'd seen some work previously that Katie Denham had done, and also um, elsewhere overseas, where cows that were vaccinated prior to calving with a calf scales vaccine had higher bricks percentage in their colostrum than cows that weren't. Mm. And there's some work in New Zealand that. We were involved with, but um, unfortunately, it was at the farm level where we we're comparing the colostrum of uh, the pulled colostrum quality on farms that vaccinated against farms that didn't. But of course, we don't know whether it's because of the vaccine that caused the one or two percent increase in bricks or just other things that they do better mm. on that farm. I wanted to explore that a bit further because there was there is a little bit of evidence that vaccination can have some more general impacts. I know in the States that Cortese and others have shown that if you give cows a BRD vaccine, I think it was, prior to calving, they had less mastitis in the following season. Hmm. So um, what we did here, I, I wanted to do a little bit of forensics on the colostrum immunoglobulins and find out if the increase in bricks, well, if there is an increase in bricks firstly, but if, if that happens, is it because the vaccine just works so well it drives higher concentrations of the vaccine-specific immunoglobulins and that just lifts the BRICS percent, or is it lifting the concentration of of non-vaccine immunoglobulins too? So we got, well, capitalised on a farm that had policy of only vaccinating, I think it was even tag number cows with a calf scales vaccine, obviously not what we'd recommend, but this is what what they've been doing. There's a few that do that sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> and they again the the odd tag cows had a saline injection pre calving. The in, even tag cows had a primary course with Scalgard vaccine, rotavirus, E. coli, coronavirus. And then at calving time, 
the well the they were grazed together treated managed the same way and then at calving time the cows they were observed and the cows were removed from the cows before they could suckle and they were taken and reared in the shed then the cows were fully milked out and we measured the colostrum volume the bricks and then took samples and sent them to Waikato University for some highfalutin <laughs> protein chemistry work and what we found was that cows that were vaccinated had higher concentrations of I mean, the vaccine obviously drove higher concentrations of vaccine-specific immunoglobulins, but it also increased the amount of IgM overall in the colostrum. And and even after taking out the vaccine-specific immunoglobulins, there was more non-vaccine-related IgM in the colostrum, which was interesting because IgM, that happens early in the immune response. It's a big protein. It doesn't cross into the colostrum that well. So it was interesting to see such a big jump in IgM. IgG numerically was higher too to a larger extent, but it wasn't significant because there was such a variance. And we only had sort of 20 cows in each group. It's a very small cow study. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't confirm an increase in IgG, which is obviously what we're mostly interested in for calf health. But yeah, it's, just, it's very much just a little proof of concept study. Uh, I can't answer any questions that are of much practical use to vets about calf health, etc. But I'd like to repeat that, just refine it, you know, run it in naive heifers, for example, because I think some of the control cows had either been vaccinated or had been exposed to rotavirus, et cetera, before, because some of them had much higher titers than their unvaccinated peers. So, uh, yeah, but it, it did show that we, kept, we could confirm that vaccination did have some more general impact, some sort of immunostimulatory impact, whether it was the adjuvant or the vaccine or not, I don't know. I, I did want to have an adjuvant-only group, but we just couldn't get that organised in time for calving when we did the study. So that, that's another thing to explore is just have an adjuvant-only yeah, group yeah. and see what that does. So, yeah, that, that was just, yeah. a again, a slightly more obscure study. And, and actually, that's something I should say about bioeatrics is you have everything from sort of these really practical studies looking at calf health and or cow reproductive outcomes and then you have these really quite obscure studies looking at in vitro sort of cell cultures and all sorts of things so yeah that something in mine's sort of halfway that that study i just talked about sort of halfway in between but um (laughs) yeah you have quite a range in there from these sort of very academic things that are quite obscure through to really practical studies there's something for everyone in there yeah, 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 there is. Um, you know, I've found exactly the same thing that, um, and actually, but the great thing is that there are really practical things in there, you know, so, so you get just, because I think there's probably an impression that these, that the Bilyatrics Congress is, is only for, you know, really um, researchers and high level sort of practitioners, that type of thing, but there's plenty of everyday practitioners there, you know, yes. I think the, the average age of people walking around looked like it was about well, about 13 or 14 to me, but um, <laughs> probably a bit older than that. But, um, you yeah, know, there's plenty of sort of quite quite young practitioners yes. too. So, yeah, so, so it's not just a big academic kind of thing, you know, it's an everyday vet. Okay. Kind of so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's an interesting, so it was, it was funny, I was just, you were just talking about all that stuff and I was like, be really interesting to to have a group with just adjuvant in there, but you were with yeah. me already. I so, could see I could uh, see you thinking that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, now that's cool. Um, so well, now that now that we've got through your four, I'll I'll just briefly mention. So I I had a oral presentation there as well. Um, I was kind of stuck in one of the little side rooms, not not in one of the main rooms like like you managed to get with yours. But um, I probably I won't spend a huge amount of time on it because I think it's it's one that 
um, to put to put some things in context, I mean, originally um, a lot of us probably submitted our abstracts back in 2019 for a conference that was in, in 2020. Um, mm. And then sort of three years later, the, the information's kind of already out and people kind of know it and, and stuff in some cases. So but this is one that was um, a study that Mick Clues was actually involved with, with um, just comparing penicillin versus cloxicillin and streptuberus and staph aureus. And the reason I say, you know, we've certainly talked plenty about it. Um, there's been plenty of communication about it in various sort of areas. And, and um, the other thing is that I think a lot of people are seeing things like massive test results and stuff that kind of is saying all the same stuff. But, but back when it was first done, it was kind of interesting. And, um, you know, part of the point, I suppose, was to take something that is seemingly old news in New Zealand and actually kind of take it to the Europeans and the North Americans and kind of shake them and say, look, penicillin's actually a good drug. You know, mm. a, there is a there is a bit of a tendency to to kind of go, oh, that's just an old drug um, you know, from some of them. Um, certainly, yeah. the Americans, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. What did you um, get much response from the audience or any any feedback? Well, <laughs> I was in a funny sort of situation because it we we're actually clashing with it was a big session um, going at the same time on sustainability, and so um, lots of people went to the sustainability session. You know, obviously a big buzzword. Um, so there weren't huge numbers in mind. It's probably I don't know, might have been forty or fifty people. So you know, it wasn't wasn't one of the really big attended. It's still a reasonable number. Yeah, yeah. But I got some Northern European guy who just basically, um, in, a, in a very, I think he was probably Dutch, and did that very sort of um, matter of fact way of. So are you telling me that I need to throw all of my pharmacology textbooks away? I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that was the main response that I got. So, um, but other than that, no, not. Yeah, it was it was sort of it was a, it's actually funny because sorry I was probably get a bit sidetracked, but um, I was meant to be the second speaker in the session. Um, so and it was first up first up in the morning, so you know people still dusting off hangovers and and so on. <laughs> um, you know all the sangria was quite tempting, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, we, and we both commented, observed the the beer on tap at yeah. the conference. How cool is that? Yeah, like like actually at the Verbeck stand there was there was beer on tap and I I saw it from behind first and I was like, Oh, that's just a joke that, you know, they've got water and they put it on like a beer tap and then came around the other side and it's got Estrella Dam written on it. I was like Yep. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, I, that's very I, amber fizzy water. But That's yeah. right. I did wonder if it was a gimmick too, but then someone walked past and let rip a massive beer burp and I thought, No, that's that's definitely yep. beer. Yeah, at so, like nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Like, yeah, it might explain <laughs> some of the snoring that I heard and some of the talks I went to with a couple of people who snore. <laughs> I would almost the, the level of snoring would almost hit outrageous. It was uh, <laughs> quite amazing. So maybe it had something to do with the beer. But sorry, uh, getting back to to your yeah, no, so, your, your well, session. so so I was meant to be the first person up. Uh, sorry, I was meant to be the second person up, and because um, it was a Spanish conference. Um, and quite a lot of the Spaniards don't speak particularly good English. Um, the guy who was, which actually surprised me to be honest, I, um, but um, the guy who was sort of the MC of the session, like just introduced me in Spanish and actually un completely unbeknownst to me, um, was doing all these introductions and saying, and I think during that saying, the first speaker hasn't actually turned up, so we're going to go straight to the second person, which was me. And then I'm just sort of sitting there completely oblivious, and he's going, Matt Wells, Matt Wells. <laughs> and I look up, and, and there's my presentation up on the screen. It's like, oh, crap. So, and then, of course, you're, you're kind of going, oh, I've only got like 12 minutes to do this really complex thing, and you're trying to rush through it. 
Yeah, that's quite that's quite the challenge to to deliver a presentation, and so it's not a long time. Like you have to really no, pick definitely uh, not. the bits out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, after getting a bit sidetracked, but what what I was going to say was the the good news is that there were quite a few presentations from the North American, uh, sorry, not the North Americans, the Northern Europeans about sort of this big surprise that they've been doing all this sensitivity testing and strep uberus turns out to be really sensitive to penicillin. Um, right. So, <laughs> so, what a surprise. Yeah. So, so which for years, you know, I remember having uh, conversations with my colleagues and, oh, you know, strep uberus is hard to cure. And go, well, not really. You know, you know what are you using? Oh, you know, this third generation cephalosporin, this fluoroquinolone, this right. macrolide. And uh, why don't you just use penicillin? So, so I think they're finally getting there, although they don't have the high dose, you know, one gram of penicillin that we do, which might hold them back a wee bit too. So Yeah, I was wondering, yeah, perhaps they just don't have the products available that we yeah, do here. Yeah, that's part of it, yeah, lower doses, and some of them are just using yeah. injectable, but, you know, it's a long story, so, um, mm. yeah. So what else did you find that was, um, uh, now that we've done our sort of self-indulgent chat about what we talked about, what, <laughs> else, what else did we find on the, on the way around? Yeah, there's a, a couple of presentations that stood out to me. One was, well, two in relation to calf health. Yeah. One was about the application of LEAN principles, L-E-A-N, which is, mm-hmm. a, a, it might be an acronym. If it is, I don't know what it stands for. It, it probably <laughs> just means actually LEAN. But it's a, the system that Toyota actually developed, I think, in the 1970s to improve their, basically the product that they made to make it really align with what the customer wanted. And this presentation was by a woman, I don't think she's a vet, she might be an agronomist who's written a book about applying lean to agriculture. And in this case, it was to calf rearing. And I know that sounds a little bit sort of maybe businessy for and a bit hardcore mm. for applying it to a dairy farm, but it was actually really good and I could see it working and she gave examples of what they've done. And just in a, in a nutshell, the lean process it's like a cycle and it has five parts to it there's the identify the first part is identify value but basically what you do is you get your team together whether it's an assembly line or or a farm in this case the people who rear the calves and the management of the farm and the owners and you go through this process first of all identify value like who is the customer which in this case is the calf mm. and what's the value you know rearing a healthy calf or surviving etc and then you map out the value stream. How do you how do you get there? What what is what are the things you need to do to have a, a good calf? Uh, and then you develop your workflow from that. You do what they call create a pull system. So instead of basically the lean system is about cutting out stuff that's not necessary and making it as easy as possible to deliver value to mm. rear a calf. So you pull the calf through instead of push it through. You you get rid of obstacles you don't just do work to keep busy you you minimize the amount of um i think you know an example maybe thinking of the, the toyota assembly line is they minimize the amount of movement that people have to do from one workspace to another so instead of picking something up and walking to another worktop it's just right mm. there in front of them and so if you oh, cut yeah, out two yeah. seconds um a thousand times a day that that really speeds things up so yeah, you just try and make things a lot more efficient and then the last step is seeking perfection with continuous improvement. So what, what they do is they do something called the Gamba walk where you walk through the calf rearing facility and identify the problems. You get everyone on board, the whole team, and then you do what's called the fishbone where you look at each look at the problem and all the different ways that that problem's arisen and how to how to sort of cut those issues off. 
then you create some SOPs, you train the people, um, what they call training within industry. So you give everyone on the team lots of really practical training, not stuff that they don't need to know, but just practical stuff to get their job done. Why? Make sure we have everyone on board. And uh, then you just go through this continuous improvement. So it's it's a quite well-defined process and you can get people in to help you with it. And it, yeah, they, they showed some pretty magnificent results when they've applied that to <laughs> car fairing facilities. So that, that was something yeah, that stood out yeah. to me that I, I wouldn't have thought previously. I just went out of interest. I wouldn't have thought would sound a little dry and I was sort of wondering would that, would that really work. But when I saw what they did and how, how they, some of the case studies that she gave, I thought actually that, that is something that I could see working in New Zealand, particularly for larger facilities where we've got a few staff. Yeah, that's, that's often the case. You go to something you think is going to be a bit boring and actually it turns out to be more interesting than the thing you go yeah. to that you think is going to be interesting. So That's right. Um, yeah. I, Hopefully Toyota is going to apply that back to their cars because, you know, Toyota, that annoys the crap out of me half the time. So, yeah, it's thought of this customer, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that was quite interesting. And then there was another really interesting presentation from a Canadian about automatic calf feeders. And, again, that's something we you, you sort of think of that and think, well, hardly any of them exist, but... I would just say that in New Zealand, given the climate we're in and how hard it is to get staff, good, yeah. particularly good staff, I can see more and more farms having automatic calf feeding systems. Mm. And in fact, he said in Canada, I think there were virtually none in about 2005, whereas I think actually I did write down somewhere. They did a survey of Canadian dairy farmers, and by 2015, 16% of their farms have an automatic calf feeder. Yeah, but I think, I think once it starts being taken up, it can go very quickly, can't it? I mean, looking at exactly. um, you know the cow collars or or yes. um, you know culture culture um, on farm culture systems, those types of things, like how quickly some of those have started turning up on farms. So yeah, absolutely. And the the things that his presentation, which is on precision precision livestock precision calf rearing, wasn't so much on the feeders themselves and how they work, although he did give tips on that, but he really focused on the information you get from them about calf health because the, the data you get from the calf behaviour when it comes to feeding can give you sometimes three or four days head start on when they're going to get sick. Mm. And the three things that he said are really useful to get from calf feeders were one, I mean, obvious one, milk consumption, and that drops about three or four days before clinical signs are detected based on research that they've done, you'll see a drop in milk consumption. The second thing to notice is the drinking speed. And again, the machines will record this. That drops up to four days before they get sick. And then the third one is the number of unrewarded visits. What I mean by that is the number of times they go back and it says you've, you've only just had a feed, mate, slow down. Um, you're, on, you're on a stand down until a certain number of hours are elapsed. That, that declines as they get sick, as you can imagine, because they're not seeking, their, maybe their appetite goes down and they're not seeking milk as much. And again, um, that drops quite a few days, well, you know, three, four days before they are noticed as unwell. But each of those by itself isn't super accurate, but if you combine them, you know, they're maybe 50% accurate individually, but if you combine them, it's more than 70% accurate, which is actually better than the people on the farm at detecting disease. Yeah. But probably it's not so much about whether the those things detect a sick calf, it's the fact that you detect it sooner than it would have been detected otherwise. And that means that obviously then the prognosis is much better because you're nipping something in the bud. 
Possibly. So, um, maybe a bit like the collars, though, that, you know, yes. you, you find things so early and, and then there's almost this kind of fuzzy line starting to, to be drawn of what's actually subclinical and what's clinical disease. Right. You know, when things present as, you know, something yes. wrong with them. And so, yeah, could could be could be interesting to try and figure out a little calf that's not drinking as fast and what, what the heck's going yeah. on, I suppose. Yeah. That's right. So, I mean, I think there's definitely, that's, I suppose I mentioned that to any listeners that that's something to just keep an eye on. It's probably going to mm. pop up over the next few mm. years and you might have farmers mm. asking questions. And I mean, obviously for anything like that to be implemented well, it's got to be simple and easy to use and, and economical yeah. for farmers to accept. And that's, that's sometimes not, doesn't quite work out. They get overwhelmed with the information that, or, or it starts drafting animals and left, right and centre and sensitivity and specificity maybe need to be adjusted. So that's an area that we mm. can help with as veterinarians. So, uh, yeah, that, that was quite interesting. And then just one more thing on, on calf rearing, mm. an interesting little study. It's not actually complete. It was just some preliminary results. But you probably know that with preventing calf scales, if you're using a, a vaccine, like a calf scales vaccine in the cows, there are sort of two aspects to it. There's the getting that initial feed in early yep. so that the calf can systemically absorb the antibodies and then there's ongoing mm -hmm. supply of colostrum to give that sort of passive protection in the gut yep. and they just wanted to see how important that second part was and what they did is they vaccinated cows the calves in the study all had a good feed of colostrum within 24 hours to have the systemic absorption but then after that they've split into two groups one group had ongoing colostrum from vaccinated cows and the other group had a product that was of the same nutritional composition but it just didn't have the vaccine antibodies in it and they wanted to see you know did they grow any differently did they get sick more anything like that they, they didn't notice any difference in health or growth but they did find they isolated less rotavirus and crypto and possibly e coli from the calves that had the ongoing vaccine immunoglobulins than the ones that yeah, didn't, yeah. but um, they need to. You know, the study was the early stages, so that that might change with time. But yeah. It did seem to have some effect on how much they isolated from the feces of those calves. And you, you know, you yeah, might say, so. well, maybe it's just the antibodies is binding it up, so that you can't detect it in the test. But either way, it's, it's binding them well, the viruses anyway. So good anyway, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, yeah. I suppose anecdotally, we all probably you know seen situations where and guys getting desperate in the outbreak go buy colostrum from the neighbour who's got surplus and vaccinated his cows and uh, or even rotogen I suppose you know doing the same type of thing so it does make sense um, yes probably depends on the level of challenge whether the growth rates get affected too I would imagine so absolutely yeah so on the calf health theme um, you mentioned Katie Denham earlier so I sat in on on um, one of her sessions actually she um, so Katie well, Quite a few of you probably remember Katie, some of the work that she did with calves in New Zealand when she um, when she was here alongside Emma, some of it as well. But she's back in the UK, went back with her family, uh, working for the University of Glasgow and still doing awesome stuff with calves. Yeah, so just, just a little bit of work done on um, which tests are the best tests for colostral transfer or for failure of passive transfer, I suppose, to be more, more exact. So the reference one, I'm trying to think what it's called, is it RIF or something? Radiomunofluorescence, I think, is what they used as the as the reference. Yes. Um, and then just comparing it with um, total protein, GGT, or uh, zinc sulfate turbidity test, which actually it turns out the zinc sulfate test is pretty crap. Um, and apparently most of the vets in, in Scotland actually used that one. So that was, right. that was quite interesting. So probably found that all of them were perhaps 
with the current reference range is maybe overestimating the failure of passive transfer. Um, so sort of reducing some of those some of those cut points and and um, yeah so so all of them work probably the the message was maybe looking at adjusting what what we define as being a failure and what's not and perhaps not using the zinc sulfate turbidity test. When you look at the comparison of different tests, mm. it reminds me of something we've been talking a bit about at EPVETS that sometimes you'll have some research conducted some time ago. And there might be, you know, it could be a small study, or it could even mm. be a, a side mm. finding or preliminary finding, but it becomes accepted as and cited in literature. Yes. And yeah. sometimes we have to go back and just recheck that that's actually the case. Mm. Uh, for a couple of reasons, one think it may have just been a, a chance finding or sort of a preliminary finding or limited scale. But two, mm. you know, the industry and animals change a little bit over time as well. So it is good to just go back and re revalidate things occasionally. Yes, exactly. Um, and and I suppose there were there were a few kind of sort of moving away from carbs. There were a few kind of slightly offbeat ones that I saw yes. too because you you do get some like really like you say you get some really different stuff. So this is actually yeah. um, Aurora Villarreal, who's actually a reasonably well known um, sort of bovine expert. I suppose you'd call her in the US. Um, I've actually worked with her in my time at MSD. But uh, she had this presentation on using red wine as an alternative to propylene glycol to treat ketosis, which sounds absolutely bonkers. Who gets the red wine? Well, apparently, because she, she's originally from Spain, and she said she learned it from her grandfather, who used to bring down like a litre of wine and, and give half of it to the cow and drink the other half himself. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, so so that's that's the theory that you actually use red wine um, as an alternative, and and it sounded bonkers. But then she had just a very very small study that actually showed that it was working better than than propylene oh. glycol was. Um, and there is some science behind it. So if you remember your Krebs cycle and your gluconeogenesis and stuff, which I'm sure you'll knowingly nod. Um, the that basically you put a simple carbohydrate of some sort into the top of it and, and it goes through all this biochemical stuff and spits out glucose at the end of it. Um, and we put propylene glycol in the top of it um, and out comes glucose. But if you put alcohol in the top of it, out comes glucose as well. And it's actually more efficient at doing that than propylene glycol is. So you get more glucose molecules per per sort of ethanol molecule than, than propylene glycol. Right. So, so yeah, there, there was some science behind it. But the problem was she then had groups that were just alcohol and she tried white wine as well as red wine and apparently like it only it can only be red wine and it has to be old red wine so not shadow cardboard it had to have sediment and stuff in it and so so yeah but but actually out of interest one thing that did cross my mind was um perhaps organic herbs you know something something like that as a as a way of treating ketosis that doesn't you know because i doubt i don't really know but i'm assuming propylene glycol isn't organic, so, so yeah, um, just a slightly that's, unusual one. That's really interesting. I was going to ask, hopefully it's not for, you know, Chateau Lafitte, a certain vintage or anything like that, because I'm just imagining reaching for some wine thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to give that to the animal. I'd rather drink yeah. that myself. But, yeah, yeah, I think it's probably a bit like cooking with it, the, the old rule that if you wouldn't drink it yourself, don't, don't put yeah. it in food. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, on, there, there are some, some of those... Random ones are interesting, but there's often gold in there too. Like you think, well, this is so random, I can't even see it happening. But then, you know, in a few years' time, it, it, it might become accepted. Um, so, something that I saw that was interesting was actually a poster, wasn't a presentation, and that was on heart rate variability of cows. And some some people may have heard 
of heart rate variability being used as a measure for humans, a measure of, I think, stress in general. Mm. The idea being that in a normal, healthy, relaxed person, your heart rate varies quite a, you know, a reasonable amount during the day as you sit down, stand up, as you're, as you're doing different things, as you breathe in and out, your heart rate should change. But if you're under chronic stress or anxiety, your heart just has this constant thumping beat that doesn't really change during mm. the day. So apparently it's quite a quite a useful marker of, of not just stress, but potentially general health issues, um, pushing the limits of my knowledge of it. But they applied this to cows or wanted to know, is it a good, useful of health status in cows? So they fitted these sort of straps around the cow's chest that are validated for large animal um, me you know, measuring their heart rates. Mm. And they found that it was that they were looking at production related stress, meaning I suppose high metabolic turnover during peak lactation, that sort of thing. And what, what they found was that the heart rate variability mapped onto their milk yield. As milk yield increased and then dropped, their heart rate variability dropped and then increased, meaning that it was showing stress. And yeah. there was also a substantial variation apparently between farms. Cows on farm A had more variability than cows on farm B and so so, so forth. It was potentially mm. uh, at that level, at the population level, a, a useful marker of stress. So that, that was something that was interesting, of course, is we have more wearable devices on cows. Uh, heart rate's probably something that will be measured and maybe may uh, something else that we can add to the mix. Yeah. Is it not measured in the collars at the moment? That's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously a bit out of touch, maybe both of us are, but I would have thought it would be. I don't know. Uh, they can measure a few things, but I'm, I wouldn't be at all surprised that some of them do already have that ability to measure mm, mm. measure uh, heart rate. Yeah. It is yeah. interesting though, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, probably as always with these things, there's a few kind of non-clinical things that come up. Um, one that I'm always a bit interested in is, is motivational interviewing, MI, um, which you know you probably know that um, Mick Clues did a little bit of stuff or some of the audience might have, might have done a bit of work with Mick Clues doing MI and VETS um, if you don't know what MI is maybe Google it I suppose to, um, um, as well but basically it's a it's a tool that doctors started using um, a few a few years ago and it's coming across into VETS now as well just a different communication style um, basically it came about because doctors were finding that you deal with um, alcoholics and chain smokers for example and you just constantly say to them look you what are you doing you're gonna you're gonna die you know you're gonna kill yourself doing this and they just go, I don't care you know they just sort of get their back up and but if you actually change the way you're having the conversation and say um, you know what do you think about this you know what are the effects on on you what are the effects on your family ask open questions and then by the time you if you if you're skillful in doing it by the time you've had the conversation they've convinced themselves to stop drinking and stop smoking right so just a different style and, and you can kind of apply it to I suppose the the uh, you know instead of saying why aren't you using cedars or why aren't you um, doing selective dry cow kind of approach that perhaps we we sometimes do to, to turning those conversations around a wee bit and, and um, as, as vets and having different style of communication. So, so that's yes. kind of what it was. And this, this was um, in Sweden where they actually had some vets that went through training and then went through mock interviews. And what, what made me laugh was that they, they found it very difficult to get them up to a high level of communication skill. And they managed to get the, the communication skill using the motivational interviewing, like training these people. They all improved. 
but they all improved from zero having a moderate level of communication, zero percent to twenty nine percent having a moderate level of communication skills. So right, so it was better. Wow. Than perhaps a bit of an indictment of our profession. Yeah, but, um, but still, yeah. I mean, I guess the point is, MI does appear to work um, in action. There were a few presentations on it, and um, yeah, still, still an interesting that, thing to think about. That's really, really interesting, and I mean, I can. I wasn't at that session, but I can, just from listening to what you said, that sounds like quite an important subject because mm. we're all scientists and it's something I've always found a challenge. It's one thing to have the information, but the other is to have it land yeah. well with the people that you're yeah. trying to work with. And ultimately, we're trying to change behaviour a lot of the time, get them to change something, and communication is so important for that. And I guess we're, we're trained so much in the science that the, we sometimes don't pay enough attention to the communication or we're, we're yeah, mixing yeah. in such sort of rarefied circles with our peers that we forget that our customers aren't always thinking, you know, they've got a thousand other things to think about. So um, they're not always thinking about what we're explaining to them. So, yeah, we're, um, probably, we're probably married to a vet half of us as well. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, all that sort of so just That's right. Constantly having conversations with other vets and, and yeah. Um, That's a really important was, topic. It's a very important topic, yeah, yeah, and and sort of segues a little bit into the other one, probably the last one that I had on my list, or the last main one, but um, so sat in on a couple of sessions actually about um, the the vet shortages. Um, so you know, if you think New Zealand's got problems with shortages of vets, we're very, pretty minor compared with a lot of other countries around the world. Um, it's it's really quite alarming, especially on the production animal side. Um, the US is just in a heck of a mess, and, and Europe. I think you know there was a quote that I think um, I think it said that seventy eight percent of the countries in Europe are short of production animal vets, and the other twenty two percent will be within three to four years. Um, so you know it's a um, it's a it's a worldwide issue, I suppose, and and. The thing was, I mean, there was a bit of setting the scene. This is what a what a mess things are in. But there was also a bit of hope of like there are people trying to do stuff about this and and trying to trying to figure out ways of um, fixing it. Um, especially in the US, there's a guy there's a guy over there. So they're, they're looking at things like quite specific farm vet training, um, either whole universities or streams that are just specific to that. But also modelling stuff on some of the what they do with um, uh, with doctors these days, you know, taking some of the rural doctors and um, which which they're having awful problems with retaining, you know, rural GPs. Again, not just New Zealand, all around the world, and and having sort of ways of um, uh, getting the right people and and having them sort of adjusted to rural life beforehand and all that kind of thing. So. So yeah, there there are things going on. Uh, I just thought it's interesting for people to, you know, maybe if they're in their own little bubble of New Zealand, to realise that you know this is a global issue and and um, causing some problems all over the place. So yeah, I didn't realise it was quite so stark overseas. It'd be opportunities there to learn from what they're doing because it sounds like they're not just not just working on the sort of supply and demand, but looking at mm. selection. I wonder if they're looking Absolutely. at retention yeah. as well and and how to. Well, that's right. That. I mean, it's. Yeah, it's all very well sort of, you know, pouring more water into the top of a leaky bucket. But, you know, if you haven't fixed the leak, that's a mm. that's a problem as well. So, yeah, there's, there's obviously, that's a whole podcast in itself. But, you know, lots of things to sort of try and sort out there. But um, Well, ho hopefully it's good for everyone if they can resolve that. Uh, um, apart from the vets they lose to New Zealand, we're, we're yeah, we can, well, that, that's, that's okay, though. <laughs> that's right, yeah. 
Um, yeah, so so that's probably the main ones. I mean, if you if you want to have, we've probably gone quite a long time, but if you want a couple of minutes, if you if there are any others that you you just want to very quickly mention, any any that come to mind. There are some that come to mind, but I won't actually go through them. I'll just say that there were some quite good presentations on fine tuning of reproduction, not just synchrony programs, but also you know things like how to improve conception rate beyond just tweaking the synchrony mm. program, nutrition, etc. There were, for those people, strange people like me who are interested in dairy sheep, there, there weren't too many presentations, but there were some posters just looking at somatic cell count use and, and culture results. So there, there's a fair bit of content there and uh, across the abstracts. And there are also some uh, presentations on epidemiology that were interested, interesting, looking at um, not just things like us, the R naught of of diseases and that sort of thing, but new techniques like molecular epidemiology, where you can look at the DNA of strains of disease, particularly at the tail end of an outbreak, so you can actually work out um, where it's come from, how it's moved by getting that molecular information, and how to make things work. You know, how do you get good compliance from farms and things like Nate. Etc. What are the tips mm. that, that they found have worked overseas? So yeah, I won't go through all that now, just for time. But it's there, and if people have questions, uh, there is content in there that we'd yeah, probably be able yeah. to point them in the right direction of. Yeah, yeah, and likewise, I won't go through too much in, in detail. Um, yeah, it's hard to condense everything down, of course. But probably just um, would quickly point out that you know there are other New Zealanders with presentations over there. Um, and I hope I don't leave anybody out, but obviously Scott McDougall and Shirley Nokovich, who works for Invetus, doing doing some research. Yeah, Scott had a few things. Out. Most of I think Scott's stuff has been published somewhere or been in the public domain. So so new to yes. people at the conference, less so to New Zealanders. But um, you know we we can <coughs> share some of the information about some of those if need be. Shirley's stuff was yes. about expression of the keratin gene in the teat canal and, and it being downregulated, which actually could turn into really interesting stuff. Uh, yes. So it's downregulated around dry off, which, um, and, you know, whether we can figure out ways to upregulate these genes so we get better keratin production around drying off oh, right. over, over time. So that could be quite cool. And Andrew Bates had a few things but didn't make it because he had COVID, but um, there were a couple of presentations uh, that uh, actually didn't end up being presented but um, yeah, things like the master test stuff and, and multi-man carbs and those types of things. So um, and I think I think Scott's stuff was antibiotic resistance um, in particular. Internal teat sealants. Strep buberus stuff on, yep, stuff with teat sealants, uh, stuff with resistance to dry cow um, antibiotics too. So so yeah, so there's probably, there's, there's plenty of stuff in there. Um, so it's a longer podcast than we usually do, but but I think, worthwhile hopefully so you know really really cool good chat if people want to know more they're very welcome to to email me or um, i'm sure you as well greg for yeah, any any details um my email is just matt.wells at verbac.co.nz and what's yours it's just as greg at epivets.co.nz greg with uh, g-r-e-g yeah yep so, so yeah, if you if you do want to know a little bit more about any of these or anything else, you're very welcome to to get in touch with us. And um, absolutely, um, yeah, thanks very much, Greg. That was um, yeah, really interesting. So hopefully, hopefully useful to everybody else. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Thanks for the opportunity. And yeah, I hope that was of use to people. And more than happy to be approached if anyone wants to find out some more. But yeah, thanks, Matt, for organising. I think it was a good idea. And. Yeah.
It was good fun. Thanks for listening to the Vet Chat NZ, proudly brought to you by Burbank. If you made it this far, we'd love to hear your feedback and any ideas you might have for future episodes. If you'd like to get in touch, please email matt.wells at verbac.co.nz or call 0800 VERBAC.